Of course, anyone who knows Hong Kong can see that there are no organized or coherent left-wing or right-wing forces in a conventional sense. But we must understand that not labeling certain actions as left or right does not mean that they do not have objective ideological consequences. That was Bromis Lee, who on February 20th talked about the topic Facing the Right in the Hong Kong Movement. The talk is part of the series China and the Left, Critical Analysis and Grassroots Activism and was moderated by Ralf Ruckus and me, Jule Müller. The series is organized from different people from left-wing initiatives and sponsored by Gong Zhao, Made in China Journal Position Politics, um, Critical China Scholars and the Foundation Stiftung Menschenwürde und Arbeitswelt. We started this series last September to shed more light on grassroots activism and social struggles in China and to discuss China's changing role in global capitalism. This series is an attempt to bring together people from different left-wing academic and activist initiatives. Now I hand over to Ralf. Thank you. Yeah, uh, thank you. <clears throat> Today's title is Facing the Right in the Hong Kong Movement. Um, let me just say a few words. The Hong Kong protest movement in 2019 and 20 has often been understood as non-ideological. It was backed by a big and broad part of the Hong Kong society. But from the beginning, there was also support for right-wing ideas and figures. Such support was even more visible in the time leading up to the recent U.S. elections. Meanwhile, left-wing and anti-capitalist currents have remained sidelined, largely sidelined. Now, uh, as our guest today, I'm happy to introduce Promise Lee. Hi, Promise. Welcome. Uh, just a few words about you. Um, Promise Lee is originally from Hong Kong and Los Angeles. He's a member of Lao San Collective and also active in U.S. socialist organizations like the Democratic Socialists of America and Solidarity. Formerly, he was a tenant organizer in a Los Angeles Chinatown. He has critically explored the pro-Trump and right-wing parts of the Hong Kong movement. And in a recent essay, um, he has elaborated on this, uh, and that's what we want to discuss. We also want to talk about the recent arrests of pro-democracy activists, uh, journalists and politicians, and the implications of uh, that repression. And we want to discuss how the struggle in Hong Kong can continue and move beyond the limitations that we will discuss, and also why it remains important Uh, to support uh, the Hong Kong movement. Promise uh, will now give a short presentation. After that, we will begin the discussion, and please go ahead and post your questions in the Q&A at any time. So, Promise, the next 10 minutes are yours. Great. Thanks for the uh, introduction. And, yeah, just to preface everything, you know, I think a lot of, uh, you know, assuming a lot of folks have read my piece that I've included um, before, um, in the introduction to this webinar and, you know, a lot of insights and impressions are pre-preliminary and really, I think, looking forward to a space to discuss of everybody and what is a pretty complex and complicated phenomenon. So, um, yeah, thank you, Kung Chao organizers, for inviting me to speak. So first off, I want to name a key criticism that I've received about the analysis of the right wing in Hong Kong. Why are we even talking about such a marginal or small element when we have state repression to deal with? 
people sympathetic to the movement question whether one can even meaningfully talk about the existence of a right wing in Hong Kong a lot of times. But for the movement's critics, they question whether we can meaningfully speak of anything but the right wing in Hong Kong. And for many in the city, they might not even really understand what the right wing even means, from those who identify with it to those who don't. This is all to say, I believe, the ideological confusion in Hong Kong, amplified by the movement's sacred adherence to unity across political lines against the CCP, does not actually prove the obsoleteness of the left-right spectrum, but rather calls for us to understand why these categories became out of touch in Hong Kong and in other mass movements, indeed, and how the failure to reckon with this limits our own movement for democracy. The right wing is not monolithic and is neither a bygone reality nor somehow the guiding center of the movement. We must reevaluate the objective conditions that gave rise to this complex conjuncture I don't have an answer for how we can immediately transform these conditions for the better, so I'll just focus on a few theses or observations that build on one another for us to discuss. First, there are different kinds of right-wing forces that react against each other, irreducible to simply the authoritarian CCP or the increasingly intolerant pro-Trump and xenophobic factions in the protests. We must distinguish between the localists who identify as part of the right-wing, a loud but extreme minority, and know clearly what that means, um, CCP officials who embody a right-wing ideology of state sovereignty coded in left-wing rhetoric. And lastly, those who have a minimal understanding of the political spectrum but support Trump simply because he is tough on China, right? Kind of think like single-issue voters in the U.S. These different right-wing forces, in fact, feed on one another, especially on the point of nationalism. The militantly anti-Chinese and exclusionary right-wing among the localist camp has given fuel to the CCP to rally their own mainland citizens around its own form of Han nationalism, to further isolate the Hong Kong movement, and to reinforce its own form of racially charged nationalism. Borrowed significantly from fascist theorists of racial nationalism and sovereignty, like Carl Schmitt. Scholars of contemporary Chinese political philosophy know that there has been a renaissance in such scholarship among some of the central ideologues of the China's um, policymaking apparatus toward Hong Kong, like Jiang Shigong. For them, politics can be reduced down to an existential conflict between those who are included in the Chinese imperial horizon and those who challenge it. Class and other issues are seen as merely secondary to the internal unity of national identity and sovereignty, the bread and butter principles of a far-right state. And on the other hand, right-wing elements in the protest movement take on some of these characteristics too, actually, though importantly without state power. In some circles, spilling blood for the movement or Hong Kong people has become a currency for recognition and impetus for action, rather than rigorously thinking through what a sustainable movement building can look like that can reach from local to migrants, almost like a reverse image of Chinese nationalism. And these people are dangerous not because they're coherent and organized, but precisely because they're not. It all begins not with an ideologically coherent local tradition of right-wing thought, but from a messy and instinctive populist dislike of this Chinese way of life and politics, which often kind of confusingly conflates both the government and the people and the culture. Thus, one, one thesis that's, that's pretty controversial of my own piece argues that this reaction also stems from Hong Kongers' own unresolved proximity to whiteness, whose colonial heritage has been conveniently reimagined as politically neutral or as a lesser evil. And by this, I mean the British colonial heritage. This is fueled by a long-standing tradition of critique from Hong Kong, Chinese, and Taiwanese intellectuals since the culture wars in the 80s, from writers like Boyang and Sun Longji to the more recent Zhou Cheng, 
who deeply attack Chineseness as somehow fundamentally alien to democratic values, you know, Western democratic values, as a reaction to the CCP's increasingly nationalistic channeling of the hot identity for its own political imaginary. In other words, the post-1997 generation in Hong Kong grew up in a discursive milieu in which a highly problematic kind of West-worshipping cultural critique dominated, providing fertile ground for ideologically right-wing sentiments with no clear local tradition of democratic movement building. This brings me to my next point, which is that those of right-wing ideas in Hong Kong often embody a central weakness of Hong Kong oppositional politics, atomization. This explains why nearly all of the city's mass uprisings since the handover have been characterized by powerful, spontaneous energy, but is unable to be sustained or channeled into systemic critique. Hong Kong politics can be often reduced to various forms of custodial politics, um, you know, where, where small group activists kind of substitute or, or kind of compelled to substitute the, the, the kind of power capacity of, of mass movements, right? Provocative street actions by a small core of activists, NGO culture and other kinds of professional activism, or politics merely in the, in the legislative council. Both the CCP and the UK have been very effective in uprooting the political traditions that emphasize sustainable, democratic, collective mass movement building that centers the power of all disenfranchised people in the city. Of course, we can find many, many instances in which the masses spontaneously and valiantly developed more radical and democratic forms of thinking and action in 2019 to 2020, of which we must learn from, remember, and uplift. But the reality is that the movement's attack on hierarchies or big platforms often ends up spilling into disinterest or even rejection in collective democratic mass organization and accountability, as well as developing a coherent political assessment of the relations of forces beyond toppling the CCP. In other words, the critique of leadership can be a source of strength, but the unclear or total lack of analysis of one system of oppression and the kinds of organizational forms that can best strike at its weak points is a limitation to democratic struggle. Thus, it is not a coincidence that today's right wing in Hong Kong has been forged out of the atomizing culture of activism, from the loud platforms, loud street platforms in Hong Kong during the Umbrella Movement, where some of the louder voices gains the platform without collective accountability or more sustainable and collective democratic vision, or like in the servers of LIHKG Lin Dung today. And how can we account for the paradox that the bullying hegemony of pro-Trump voices in Hong Kong discourse, where any critic of Trump is smeared as CCP supporters by a loud alliance of minority of right-wing pundits, but also politically confused Trump sympathizers, grew in a movement that claims to not privilege various forms of ideology. By framing their concerns as non-ideological, some right-wing localists are able to position their discourse as merely tactical or pragmatic against the ineffectual moderates or other ideologues. They say things like, we can't discuss class or identity politics because these are distractions. We must mobilize for Trump because these are only hope. We can't support the unruly BLM movement because they're not like us and will jeopardize US support. And at the same time, most people in the movement refuse to call out these forces in the name of unity. And also because, I argue in a sense, the right wing differs from a lot of the rest of the movement only to the degree in which people believe the myths of the democratic potential of Western individualist values. Perhaps the greatest limitation and illusion in Hong Kong political discourse is this belief that we can transcend ideology, that somehow the left-right spectrum simply does not apply at all. Of course, anyone who knows Hong Kong can see that there are no organized or coherent left-wing or right-wing forces in a conventional sense. 
But we must understand that not labeling certain actions as left or right does not mean that they do not have objective ideological consequences. Some actions open up space for democratic mass action, and others foreclose these possibilities or place breaks on them. And the U.S. election has shown that our own movement's lack of clarity on this political compass, in fact, opens us up to destructive co-optation by established anti-democratic right-wing forces beyond Hong Kong. This is the kernel of why it is vastly important to understand the existence of right-wing ideas, however convoluted, in the Hong Kong movement. Because bad ideology and organizing practices give space for our agents of oppression and other opportunists to perpetuate our condition of bondage. And our lack of clarity in these discourses means that we appropriate these anti-democratic paradigms among our ranks, quickening the collapse of an all-too-important mass struggle for democracy against one of the most author powerful authoritarian regimes in the world. The right has long condemned the left for dividing and limiting Hong Kong, Hong Kong's movements. But where now is the accountability for the right's failure, whose ideas have gained traction but have clearly not worked, from banking our liberation on Trump to alienating our mainland allies? Facing the right in Hong Kong means rethinking and rejecting how our vision of freedom last year can somehow include those who are comfortable in delegitimating the lives, freedom, and human rights of oppressed people with different disinformation and hate. Facing the right also means recognizing how the roots of the right wing extend beyond support for Trump. It entails a rethinking of how we, as Hong Kongers, have been accustomed to think of our own political and cultural identities. How can we build a sustainable movement together? And how have we failed to? Well, violence from the CCP's repression and from part of the movement's rightward drift are not comparable to each other in terms of scale. In this dark period of silencing by the CCP, we must honestly turn to what we can change among our own ranks, what we can self-reflect and improve on to rebuild an even more effective movement in the future to come. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for, this, for this very interesting uh, presentation. Um, there are no questions from the audience yet, so I will, I will start ask, asking you questions. Uh, what I really liked uh, is that you actually talk more about the left than the right, in the sense that um, you see uh, you have a certain critique, right, of uh, the left and left-wing strategies. But at the same time, like, you know, you mentioned that, but and everyone I know in, in Hong Kong always mentions that the left is very weak and also divided. So, so my first question is actually how, you know, like you express a certain critique, but how do you think the left could actually break through this sort of, you know, somehow dom domination of a certain uh, right-wing discourse, not domination of the movement by right-wingers, right, but the domination of discourse, as you mentioned. How could the left break through that? Right. Yeah, so I think definitely, yeah, the left is very weak and small in Hong Kong. You know, of course, I think it's very important to name that, you know, there are leftists in Hong Kong and there are folks who share left-wing ideas, you know, to very varying degrees and are both, you know, I think everyone's kind of learning in their own respective milieu, right? There are folks who are prominent in, in the Hong Kong Federation of Students at some point. And of course, there are more, you know, anarchist folks or other tendencies who are less affiliated with milieu. And of course, there are folks in and the labor unions, uh, you know, all, all, all of which all of these people were doing great work, right? And I think one thing to stress that I've been kind of alluding to throughout my talk, right, is this kind of perspective towards organization, right, towards organizational practice, towards a practice of building power in a way that, you know, one doesn't alienate ourselves from the movement, right? That doesn't, that doesn't you know, go ultra left, right, in a sense where, 
we see, you know, of course, I'm, you know, my whole presentation is framed around how I dislike the right wing, right? But at the same time, it's like, how can we kind of come from a position of both humility to try to, to try to do our best to think about, you know, the best, best opportunities for intervention to actually push for action, right? Especially in this dark period, um, and to convince more people into, um, you know, what we think are the best uh, paths to liberation based on our own analysis and participation in the movement, right? I think that participation part is very interesting. I think it's very important to not distance oneself from movement, despite the kind of very contradictory and diverse tendencies. So participation is a very simple, basic first step, definitely. Um, and the humility to both learn from movement, but also not to completely tail the movement, right? And fail to have any sort of critique or analysis at all. It's a very fine balance. It's obviously easier said than done, but I think that's definitely the first step. The second thing is, again, going back to what I said about organization, right? I, I don't mean organization in the sense that we need to go go and go start some sort of Leninist revolutionary party or something because we're Marxists and, 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 and socialists. It's, it's, it's thinking about what it means to have democratic procedures, democratic processes, right? To cultivate an ethos of collective decision-making um, that can transcend over the kind of chaos or, or the, you know, very reactionary chaos sometimes, right? Of how decisions are conducted on the front lines of the movement or on the channels of LIHKG, right? And so what do these mean? I think, I think these are precisely the thing that I feel like sometimes are often neglected when we, when we take in the ideas and traditions of left-wing thinkers and movements, right? From, from the West, from the global South, and from other parts of the world, right? It's not just ideas, right? It's also the organizing practices, right? And this is where I, I, I don't want my kind of um, championing of organization to be some sort of critique of, I don't know, anarchism or some sort of more decentralized left-wing practices. I think actually the key to effective decentralized left-wing practices is a very intentional view about how we can make decisions together collectively, democratically. How can we have an eye towards building power as the left, right, without alienating the broader mass movement that doesn't share our, our kind of critiques, right? And on this note, you know, we can look to the Black Lives Matter movement. We can look to anarchists and black feminist groups, right, in the 70s, right? You know, what is consciousness raising? Why do these people find a need to form their own kind of collectives in a way that doesn't, you know, that emphasizes coalition building, right? That doesn't emphasize a total separatism from the rest of the larger movement, despite the fact that a lot of these groups, again, I'm pointing to some of the black feminist groups in the US in the 70s, right? Despite the fact that there's been so much uh, marginalization and ostracization, they're thinking very critically about what it means to build a coalition, right? What it means to build power, right? As the left together, right? Even though they're emphasizing these principles of self-determination, you know, trying to think about what, what their own intervention is and how, can, how they can make interventions in a bro broader and much more diverse mass milieu. So I think that's definitely something um, we'll have to think more about. You know, I think I think even something as simple as, you know, for example, the new new unions, the new labor unions, you know, that are being attacked obviously by the government. I think there are ways to, you know, what does it mean for us to think about ways to support these unions? You know, beyond simply the infrastructure of HKCTU, right? How can we form, you know, it could even be something as 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 little as a group chat or or helping to turn out of these many, you know. Um, street stands that some of these new unions are trying to kind of put together to get membership, right? How can we even just form like a small core of people to help support support these groups in action, but at the same time having our own space to think about, you know, um, what is the future of new unions? How can we embed ourselves, right, um, as workers and as everyday people in Hong Kong and the diaspora into these structures to assist them while both thinking critically about how to support without necessarily just co-opting, right? New unions are co-opting 
other parts of the struggles, right? So not a coherent answer, but um, I think these are some some kind of, uh, and of course, you know, I'm, I'm not on the ground and I, I learn the best I can from folks who are on the ground and, and think kind of for myself uh, as I'm going through all these uh, this very turbulent last couple of years in Hong Kong. So these are some recommendations and definitely happy to push back and also hear from others in a question section to see what alternatives are available for the left. Um, one one question that I was just asked refers to the legacy of uh, colonialism. Um, in your recent article, article, you refer to Hong Kong's colonial heritage and especially the way some people in Hong Kong reimagine the exploitative legacy of colonialism on mainland China and its influence while British colonialism is kind of delinked and even mystified as the, quote, better past. So what, what social groups in Hong Kong are actually pushing for this kind of post-colonial myth and what can it be done in terms of demystifying? Right, yeah, like I said in the essay, and I think I alluded to this earlier in the talk, um, Right, I think I think especially my generation or you know this current generation of uprising or, or the younger generations too, right, grew up in this discursive milieu in which, um, um, you know, there has been very there's been a very rigorous tradition of local critique, right, of Chineseness, right, and what what mean again, I'm gonna just want to preface all this by saying I'm I'm not trying to champion some sort of uh, revive Chinese nationalism or something. Right? We somehow have to like reclaim the Chinese identity in, in some crude sense. But I think this is very important to, to explain why this kind of Western influence, right, this kind of Western nostalgia is so strong, right, is because of this kind of rigorous local critique of, um, you know, we don't want to be Chinese, right? And this goes people like um, a lot of intellectuals in China from the 80s, from a lot of the democratic movement, you know, which are very inspiring in a lot of ways from, you know, before the Tiananmen movement um, um, in, the, in the late 80s, right? This kind of delinking of, of Han Chinese identity or Han Chinese cultural identity with some, some notion of democratic values, right? And, and, and how, you know, this, this kind of, um, and for us as a movement or for the Hong Kong people to embody and to practice these democratic values, we somehow have to kind of alienate ourselves, right? Or to kind of draw a line of demarcation with what we consider as Chineseness, right? Again, you know, these, these categories are all very in flux and we can deconstruct them further, but that's kind of the cultural critique at work. Um, and, and so I think this furthers, this just kind of quickens, um, um, provides a fertile ground for people to just naturally look at Oh, look, but human rights, right? Like the UK and the US, right? And of course, there's a huge erasure of, of the history of US imperialism, of, of Western colonialism abroad and currently, right? And, and, and a lot of that stuff is really missing in popular discourse in Hong Kong. Or, or there's almost like a kind of, um, um, you know, without proper organizing, proper political education and, and proper kind of motivating from, from activists, it, it's really an uphill battle, right? Like, like for the reasons I just cited, it, it, it's hard for people to take in the fact that the U.S., you know, especially in its subsidiary uh, kind of regimes, right, from, I don't know, everyone from Pinochet to, to you know, a lot of other kind of uh, governments, like really repressive governments that the U.S. have helped propped up, that, you know, this, this legacy of Western colonialism or Western freedom is not somehow this kind of glorious alternative to Chinese authoritarianism. And there's something baked into how we think about politics, how we think of ourselves as Hong Kongers, how we think of democracy and all those things, that disposition a lot of folks naturally away from recognizing this fact, right? And and I think um, th this is not to simply, I, I think, you know, kind of slam the movement or, or, or people or whatever, but this is, I'm trying to identify what I think is a very, a very real issue and how 
we've related ourselves to our colonial legacies and, and obviously the legacy of colonialism itself, right? How we're positioned in that structure. So, you know, I think in terms of this recovering a better past, right, this, this, this move of trying to recover the origin, right, to, to stake this kind of insurgent um, Hong Kong identity. I mean, that's a very classic political theory move, right, to, you know, to try to recover some sort of origin in the past to justify a new sense of national or community's identity. So in a lot of sense, this, this makes perfect sense why folks are trying to grasp at some sort of, you know, some folks are grasping at like the, you know, early, early 1840s where when, the, when Britain first took Hong Kong as this kind of, you know, glorious start of Hong Kong as a city. And, and you know, the, the, these discourses are pretty prominent and, 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 and mainstream sometimes, not in a really rigorously ideological sense, but right, it's a, it's a kind of unconscious sense that's kind of baked into a lot of people's um, psyches. And um, yeah, I think the main problem isn't actually like, you know, there's a bunch of really organized, you know, British restorationists or something in Hong Kong. I don't think that's the reality. I think the main problem is more that, you know, what is this kind of unconscious um, disposition towards, uh, towards Western values or Western democracy, so to speak? What does that tell us about the kind of freedom that the movement wants, right? What does it tell us about the future that the movement wants, even if we win, you know, let alone not winning now, right? And I think this provides a perfect segue into this rise of the pro-Trump elements. The, the, what I see is the kind of worst extremes, right, of, 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 of a completely false reading of, of what Western democracy or Western culture is. And yeah, and just to give a short recommendation, I think in terms of demystifying, right, I think pressing on the continuity of the colonial infrastructures in Hong Kong, you know, not just, you know, which one's better, China or the US, right? I think about emphasizing the fact that China's actually built on the colonial legacy and infrastructure of the British and also the U.S. in a lot of ways, right? From the point of policing, right? I and, mean, you know, Lao San has an article about how actually the U.S. police force has trained the Hong Kong police for, for many years, right? And of course, the, the transition from the Royal Hong Kong Police Force to the Hong Kong Police Force under um, CCP today is in a sense merely symbolic, right? A mere, a mere shift in sovereignty with with minimal change, right? And actual structures of policing that has always governed um, um, Hong Kong in the colonial period, right? And you can see this very clearly in, in, in Carrie Lam's, um, um, you know, we could see this very clearly in the streets, right? Where we have literal, still like British cops and, 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 and kind of the levers of power in the police force, just you have British cops kind of, you know, shooting tear gas at protesters. And, and then now you have some left-wing activists somehow defending these British cops as, as anti-imperialists. So, so it's like pretty clear in the ground, right? Or, or Carrie Lam's kind of um, invocation of the emergency uh, uh, ordinance thing, right? To, uh, basically using a colonial era martial law to, govern, uh, to kind of clamp down the city um, um, in, in some parts of the movement. So I think emphasizing the fact that, um, you know, this doesn't work not because, uh, you know, Chinese authoritarianism is some, somehow exceptional, to the methods of Western colonialism, but is in fact in continuity with them, right? And we can start seeing this kind of, yeah, even in the actions of Trump and Ted Cruz, right, shooting down TPS, temporary protected status for Hong Kongers. I think these people are quickly showing their hand, right, in terms of what, what the, the type of politics that they're accustomed to, right, which actually parallels and overlaps a lot with how the CCP works and does things. And I think it's about emphasizing that continuity and how, um, you know, it's not about that, you know, oh, you, you, you suck for not recognizing the, the horrors of Western legacy or something like that, but more of articulating on the ground as each event comes out, how, wait, actually, there are better allies for us to seek, right? And, and this is why actually these things kind of actually overlap with each other and, and continue to make those interventions and discourse. Um, but also, like, for example, um, you know, when, T, when Ted Cruz, Senator Ted Cruz shot down TPS, 
how can we make the pivot right on an organizational sense to say actually isn't this a great opportunity to connect with migrant justice groups instead right not not to you know like you know i think i think in a humble but also right in a in a kind of very clear sense that there are better alternatives because obviously this alternative is not working out so i think this um yeah that that's kind of one 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 preliminary suggestion i would i would offer in response one one kind of let's let's call it the ugly phase of part of the movement was or is the the racism right against both uh, uh, mainland immigrants but also uh, immigrants from from other parts of the world, especially the the many uh, women from Philippines and Indonesia who work as domestic workers in this city. Um, so how do like why do you think these these um, issues you know of immigration are so prominent, and why does this especially this younger generation show this you know this form of, of xenophobia, which I think is not just evident among the the right wing but more generally in the in the movement right definitely yeah uh again yeah to reiterate i completely agree i think um i think that there, there are very significant overlaps between you know what i call a right wing um and 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 even the more liberal center parts of the movement right i think there's a continuity in in, in a kind of ideological basis um that folks have not recognized or unpacked uh in the same way but yeah, I think, you know, I guess one, of course, the legacy of colonialism has always been to divide, right, um, you know, people. And I think there's a very deliberate kind of, um, I think it's very paradoxical because people always think of Hong Kong as a very cosmopolitan city. But in a sense, it's, it's a very isolating city in terms of political discourse, right? There's a lot of, there's not a lot of, you know, readily available political paradigms for people to draw from. Not a lot of readily able um, live experiences for people to kind of look at. Um, and to sympathize with, right? And so, you know, I think, you know, I wrote a little bit on the connections between Hong Kong movement and, and Black Lives Matter, right? And, you know, like growing up in Hong Kong, it's like, you know, you like barely see another black person around. Like there's it's just like a minority of them. And there's just like a kind of um, um, a very uh, uh, nonchalant even or just natural kind of anti-blackness, right? That, that kind of exists in the movement that, you know, people have heard from whatever myths or whatever... Uh, you know, unconscious biases or whatever you see and stuff. And there's been no real kind of milieu paradigm that, that we can really trouble that. Um, like there's, I feel like, um, and I think what, what the Black Lives Matter offer, movement offered is this kind of crisis moment where people were forced to think about these connections between mass movements, to think about colorism, to think about racism uh, in a new way, in a way that that has never been kind of relevant in a weird way for people's everyday lives in Hong Kong. And so that, that, that's partly it. And then obviously the Southeast Asian migrant workers thing is a separate issue, right? Because then they're so thoroughly embedded, right, uh, uh, in Hong Kong society as, as something like almost 10% or more of the Hong Kong working, working force. And it's a very regular, right, um, instances of racism, discrimination. And you, know, you see all these different news outlets and, and there's been a lot that's kind of covered up and, and barely discussed, right? And I think that shows, you know, I, think, I think the key is, yeah, right, people see it as a kind of a marginal issue. But to me, it's yeah, it's, it's taking on a certain like unconsciously taking on a certain kind of power relation, a kind of division in how society works from the British colonial regime, right? From the Chinese colonial regime, in, in a sense, right? Like these things aren't sufficiently impacted, right? The process of decolonization, the process of decolonization for the populace in a city has not really been fully um, um, advanced, um, um, especially since the handover. And I think these these contradictions exist not in a very abstract sense, not just in a very abstract sense in a city, 
but in a very real way in which people appropriate these things and, and yeah, end up embodying kind of, you know, this is how society works, right? It's, yeah, there, there are these migrant workers that, that uh, you know, I think there's a huge kind of like poor self by bootstrap rhetoric thing that's pretty prominent in, 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 in Hong Kong society. And, and there are a lot of things that are left unquestioned, right? These are divisions of the movement, you know, there are poor people and there are like richer people and that's kind of how things are. And, and, and for those who are more middle-class or middle upper class who have access to, to, to more resource and, 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 and are on this other side of this power spectrum, um, it's very naturally legitimized. Right. And I think a lot of it is very unconscious and very, very much a result of the colonial legacy and lost stuff as a result of things haven't been unpacked. Right. But at the same time, also, you know, because of the hierarchies, uh, and the power relations that the Beijing government are keen to uphold, right? We have to also remember like a lot of these, you know, it's not just kind of everyday racism or everyday discrimination. It's a deeply structural kind of uh, uh, discrimination, right? Of, of public, private uh, uh, collaboration, right? Government and private agencies, right? Like on a note of Southeast Asian migrant workers that has been really fueling and underpinning this kind of structural inequality. So I think, yeah, at the same time, it's, it's, it's this kind of thing that feeds off of one another, right? This kind of everyday unconscious discrimination or, 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 or lack of awareness of class divisions in the movement, but at the same time also deeply and kind of fundamentally amplified by uh, governmental policies, right? By the precise kind of society that the Beijing government has been keen to uphold and continue and perpetuate um, from our last uh, colonial oppressors. So, yeah. Yeah, let me let me ask you another another question. There, there. On one hand, you you kind of dis described how you think um, the left wing discourse should should be more organized. Point to like collective decision making. Um, you know, there there's a, someone posted that. You know, why why aren't there like mass forums of debate where where, where collective decisions are made, or or people are you know sort of self organizing, in 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 this form. So that's you know that on on one hand. On, on the other hand, um, actually, when I heard and witnessed the sort of the lack of a you know sort of common platform, the distrust of leadership, um, and actually also kind of the distrust of of any ideological sort of stand, I first felt that was actually an opening, right? And because in in a, in you know left wing history of left wing movements. Um, you know that the, the one one important current or you know thing that always comes up is is patronizing uh, patern paternalism, uh, you know sort of left wing uh, groups or parties whatever trying to dominate right. So in that sense, I I really understood. So in 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 some way, I feel now that the medicine you are proposing is kind of you know might or you know might include let's call it a disease that is not. Uh, existing in Hong Kong because the left is very weak, but is actually an experience that many people elsewhere have had with left-wing movements. Right. Um, yeah, again, I, I just want to uh, emphasize, right? Uh, yeah, I think the decentralization, I'm not against decentralization. I think I think I actually agree. I think there's a lot of wonderful and amazing um, opportunities uh, that have been opened up by this kind of autonomous decentralized movement, right? And I, I think I'm very clear on on the fact that I'm not against um, I'm not against decentralization per se, but more how certain elements or how 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 this ethos of decentralization had ended up being um, um, conflated 
with other things, right? And I think I think at the same time, um, decentralization opens up the possibility of greater room for liberation. But at the same time, what the Hong Kong movement showed in the last two years is that it also opens up the movement to certain types of weaknesses, right? And and this is not to just condemn the movement. Like there are problems and also you know, really good things about every mass movement, right? That, that's how mass movement works. There are contradictions. And as the left, we, 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 we stick close to it as much as possible and participate. And we try to try to make things um, what we think is more effective, right? That, that, that's kind of, um, uh, for me, a kernel of, of left-wing critique and left-wing activism. And yeah, I want to turn to like, on, on that note, like I want to turn to, um, and I know some folks already mentioned, and it's like an article already assigned to by Zoe Zhao, um, you know, I think has a lot of, uh, you know, really helpful quotes that point exactly to kind of what I'm talking about. So I'm, I'm kind of referring uh, to her, uh, I forgot how we translate it, but her, her, her article that I, I kind of attached for, for the readings for this talk, right? But she says things like, anonymity and decentralization do not necessarily result in a diversity of perspectives. Anonymity and decentralization within a social movement do not guarantee equal opportunities for t- participation. Anonymous organization makes it difficult to see where the structural biases lie, much less address them. Again, going back to my point, I'm, I'm, I think I'm less, I'm, I'm less skeptical of anonymous organization than I think Zoe is, right? But I think she points out very important points, right? Where it's like, you know, decentralization anonymity doesn't automatically uh, 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 entail that power relations are, are somehow completely dismantled, right? I think it points to the fact that, and I think you see this dynamic very clearly in, in LIHKG where everyone's like mostly anonymous, um, or you see this on the front lines, especially on in the protesters. There's another article that's coming out from Lausanne that, that you know, from, from the perspective of a participant where she recognized the fact that, you know, for example, when the, you know, when the will of a lot of the people in the movement actually are favoring like a, a more nonviolent rally in a certain point, right? And suddenly you have like a minority of, of kind of, um, um, you know, very radical activists who are kind of provoking things in the front lines much more than the rest of the people want. But then there's actually no mechanism to really resolve or even just to talk through, okay, wait, where do we want to move as a group in this specific action, right? What do we want to do as our next step? What is our kind of purpose for this rally? And this is not to say we need some sort of democratic centralist line, like, you know, the group decides all on one thing and we all have to follow it. But the fact is that the, the there, there has been no, um, um, as much as decentralization em- enabled more voices on a table, it also ends up limiting certain perspectives or ends up being, uh, ends up turning into a situation where, where people just end up doing their own thing, right? And this is what, what I call this phenomenon of atomization, right? Partly related to why it's so hard to sustain a movement in Hong Kong, right? Because I genuinely think there's an alternative to both. Um, I think democracy doesn't mean you, you, you just do your own thing, right? It means that you, people do things together. And sometimes it means people do things more autonomously. But these things are meant to be done and executed together in a, in a transparent and democratic fashion that, you know, one, if you look at the, um, again, like the front lines of the streets or even the things that went on in the sieges, right, of Chinese University of Hong Kong and, and Poly U, right, you get, you know, student protesters arguing with these outside protesters who are insisting on, you know, burning a car or something. And someone was like, don't burn the car. And it's like, how do you stop the, the other guy from burning the car of like, you know, 95% of people don't want to burn the car and set on fire in front of the cops, right? So like, what are the mechanisms? And, and there are a lot of general frustrations and grievances, right? That people are afraid to voice, right? That I've heard because, you know, it's like, no, we, not, we need to be united and we can't split. So I think it ends up, you know, it ends up going into this kind of vicious cycle where, where, where you know, we can't voice out grievances because we want unity. And is that really the best democratic practice when folks are actually afraid to, 
critique Trump, to critique the movement, right? To talk about strategy together, right? To talk about differences in a respectful manner together. Is this actually enabling, um, you know, not just democratic in some like principled sense, but also is this actually helping our movement when people are afraid, starting to be afraid in this kind of sense to voice out things for fear of um, being called, uh, you know, to all out left hard or something, right? Or being, or, or, or being seen as a moderate and you're not radical enough or a CCP supporter without any evidence, right? And so I think for me, that's what I'm kind of pointing to in terms of the limitations, right, of, of this kind of, this decentralized phenomenon, right? There's a conflation between a healthy skepticism of leadership, of hierarchy, with democratic process of organization at all, right? And again, I just want to be very clear, like, I mean, organization, not as, not, not just by something like, you know, the Labour Party or the, in the UK, or, 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 uh, or some like, orthodox Trotskyist party or something like I mean organization and even something as decentralized as an anarchist collective in 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 I don't know in Latin America or something or even something like a, a just like a local grassroots group right and what does it mean for these things to be sustained right beyond a social media page right or beyond just tailing the movement right but for these groups to both do concrete things in movement but sustain itself as an entity with a very specific intervention in coalition relationship to other groups right Again, you know, I'm offering a lot of critiques and I know that, uh, you know, it's like there's been a lot of a lot of amazing things in movement. But again, I, I go back to a line where it's if we genuinely want liberation, we genuinely want things to improve. There should be room for self-reflection and what we think are actually pretty positive things like decentralization and look to actually what, what went wrong and in and, and, and some aspects and how when we don't reckon with the things that went wrong, um, Things get worse and worse, right? And and what 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 initially is is a very positive ethos of decentralization, can quickly turn into um, you know what we see now, right? This kind of unorganized, non-ideological right wing with a very loud pro-Trump hegemony, right? That still proclaims to be part of a decentralized phenomenon, right? And so uh, I think it's it's time long overdue um, um, to pick up and and to really reflect on these contradictions. Okay, um, Yule will now um, ask the next questions. Uh, thank you. So you already talked a lot about um, decentralization and organizing of the protest. And I would particularly be more interested in how leftist protest right now looks in Hong Kong, especially when it comes to unionization. So in fall of uh, 2019 and after, Many grassroots unions were formed as an extension of the movement in workplaces. And I would be interested, how have these unions developed? Are they forming a larger force and are they connected to labor groups in the mainland or elsewhere? Are there also cross-class and cross-profession attitudes when it comes to organizing and solidarity? For example, connecting and showing solidarity with mates who mainly are migrants from Southeast Asia. Yeah, in terms of left in Hong Kong or the unions, you know, I think there are folks who, who have a, who I know might have a better understanding than me uh, that I see in the audience, right? So I, I won't pretend to have a lot of uh, expertise on this, but but based on what I know, I'll just say, you know, yeah, I think that some of the new unions are definitely still operating, and and um, I think we should do our best to support them from afar and on the ground, right? But the thing is, yeah, like definitely, you know, I think if folks have been following this news, right, there's a kind of like a an explosion of new unions, right, and in, in, the, in the opposition camp as a kind of political, uh, as, a, as a tactical instrument um, to assist the movement, right? So it's been like more than 40, 50, 60 uh, sectors that I've never even thought you can dream of that would organize, right? Uh, or would unionize, have unionized, right? So obviously, I think by this point, I mean, it's quite 
natural and expected that not all of these can can persist and continue. So I think we have a mix of of certain unions who are especially stronger and certain ones that are kind of you know dying down a bit. And you know most notably the uh, the the government workers union, which is very exciting, recently uh, uh, disbanded. Um, their in fact their chairman I think their chairperson just kind of uh, resigned or something and because like I think uh, you know I think these, like the, the the Hong Kong government are forcing a lot of the government workers to take certain oaths or something like that because of their job and and it was just like a very uh, difficult situation for a lot of these workers and and yeah I think the union had to disband so like some of these phenomenon kind of happened but at the same time right like so you know HAEA um, um, the hospital workers union has really been at the front lines of of you know they 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 they, they launched that strike last year around this time a little bit more than a year ago. And I think they're still going strong and they still have a kind of uh, a, a robust community going. And, and you know, Winnie Yu and other folks have been doing really amazing work, um, especially in the face of, 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 of very, very increasing Beijing repression. Right. So I think so you get the hospital workers who are definitely still fighting and, and folks are still trying to support them. Um, and, and there's some, you know, I think unex- unexpected sectors. Right. And I think that actually calls for. Um, um, you know, us as a left broadly to think about because this is not just like a unique phenomenon in, in, in Hong Kong, right? Like, for example, like I think the freelancers or, or you know, even the, the fact that speech therapists end up being a very kind of uh, interesting um, point, uh, a group to unionize, right, in the last year. I think the, these these kind of, um, um, yeah, looking at which, which unions or which sector ends up actually end up building the most union power, workers power, uh, it ends up being interesting because they're not actually the the most expected ones, right? And what does that tell us about, you know, working conditions in Hong Kong, the division of labor in Hong Kong, and so on, right? And so, but yeah, so I don't think, as far as I know, I mean, like mainland labor, and again, other folks here know about mainland labor better than I do, so uh, I won't comment too much. But I think you know things have been pretty dismal and bleak as far as I know, and and what's going on in mainland, uh, in the mainland labor scene, especially with the ascent of Xi Jinping. So as far as I know, there's not been that much contacts, but I can't say for sure in terms of like mainline groups and, and, and Hong Kong groups. But definitely, you know, you know, through Lao Time Collective, we, we try to keep in touch with the, the new unions as much as possible, or at least the ones that we can kind of, we have connections to and we can provide like international and political exchange to and resources and stuff. So we've been still doing that. And at the same time, I think, you know, one concrete way to support them, especially if you're on the ground, right, is that if you still follow some of the telegram channels that these unions are in, right, like they, they still regularly try to do things like hold kind of like street stands, right, to kind of promote their union work, just like, you know, they pick a time on some day and, and they just, you know, they kind of flyer about the union and try to get members, but also raise awareness and stuff. And and as far as I know, last I saw, they're, they're actually actively looking for like volunteers to just help them with the work, right? And that, that ends up being a very good way to both get to know them um, and, but also, you know, concretely help with the movement, right? They're the remnants of the movement as we, as we still call it um, through these kind of uh, uh, a smaller scale efforts by the labor unions. And what else was, yeah. So, you know, some, yeah, I think the, the kind of bottom line is that, you know, definitely all the unions are facing repression, especially the most, the more powerful ones, like the hospital workers. Um, I think they're still fighting um, um, the government who who's trying to kind of give them slack for, uh, for striking back in February. And, and I think the hospital authorities kind of threatening some, some actions against the workers that they're kind of um, um, trying to push back on. And yeah, some are stronger than others and, and we should do our best to support. And, 
the situation in the mainland is a bit dismal, but um, I guess we'll, you know, we'll have to wait and see and, and, and buy for a long-term strategy to see how we can keep keep in touch the best we can with the minority of folks that are still active, um, you know, in preparation for um, whatever spontaneous movement that might happen, right, that we can kind of help immediately uplift. Um, uh, I want to ask you another question about um, independence. So the national security law criminalizes any call for Hong Kong independence. Also, the demand for independence was not on the list of the five demands, although parts of the movement promoted it. Now the increasing intervention of the CCP in Hong Kong politics and the increasing repression in the city make it uh, less likely that Hong Kong will keep an amount of political autonomy for much longer. Um, do you think, is there still a chance for self-determination and Hong Kong autonomy? And in your view, what is the position of the of left-wing groups in Hong Kong on the demand for independence? And what do you think about this in general? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, my own personal view about the independence question is that I, I personally don't support independence for a variety of reasons. I support self-determination. Um, I'm, I'm echoing Aulongyu's line here on this one, where I, I think I'm not like opposed to people calling for independence. And if that ends up being the majority view or something, you know, that's that's kind of how things work. I think the key is is self-determination and for people to have the right to democratically decide their own future, their political future together as the Hong Kong people and things of that nature. Right. So I think um, that's kind of my perspective on independence. And I don't expect or I don't I don't think I require uh, all, all the people in the movement um, um, or even other leftists to follow that. But that's kind of my personal opinion. Right. For me, it's the it's the capacity to choose independence rather than independence itself. That's the key for me. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, in terms of position of left-wing groups in Hong Kong, again, I, I don't want to, I don't want to be like giving dictums to, to folks on the ground, but, but again, going back to my kind of suggestion, I think what, you know, one thing is for sure, right? Like in Hong Kong society, it's difficult to, to just kind of openly position yourself as left-wing, as socialist or anarchist or something like that, right? In the same way that, 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 that you can do in other different regions and will use because of, um, you know, just kind of total lack of left-wing tradition and what that means, right? And when you say left, like most most normal everyday people would think of like the CCP and government repression and things like that. And it's going to take some, like a lot of time and effort to really even just build back to a place where we can even start to, you know, talk about left-wing discourse in a, in a much more open way, right? But I think that doesn't mean like, you know, leftists shouldn't organize. That also doesn't mean that leftists should just, you know, stop organizing as leftists and just, you know, tail the movement. I think that means that, um, you know, we can hold discussion groups, we can do, you know, I think there's been a lot of actually exciting things, um, you know, that I'm not totally familiar with that, that has happened before the movement, right, from like, um, um, right, there's like student worker alliance coalitions, right, things like that. So, you know, I think in terms of, you know, it doesn't have to be like super ideological or something, but, you know, having vehicles that, that can at least provide a space for discussion and dialogue um, to at least pass through these, these very dark times of repression under national security laws. But actually, you know, still attending the fact that there are still spaces for change, right? Like, for example, again, I keep going back to the new unions because that's still one of the few things that's going on, right? Is that, you know, if the new unions are still organizing, right, that means that there's a space for um, collectives to form, for campaigns to form, right? So I think campaign is an important word, I think, um, um, for folks to advocate around. And of course, you know, I, I know full well the, 
the um, the more you centralize or the more you kind of collectivize or, or formalize things, the the greater the risk of repression. Like, yeah, definitely, I see that, and and that's a real concern, right? But I think there are ways to, uh, um, you know, whether through private dialogues or through through not formalizing things, but still holding sustainable or trying to sustain a group of people or to sustain a campaign. I think there are ways to do that without formalizing or opening yourself as a target for repression, right? Or at least like quite immediately. I mean, I mean, I guess in the long run, like in this pace, like everyone's target of repression anyways. And so, so I think, um, yeah, I think looking for ways to both uh, develop sustained um, organizations and campaigns without necessarily having to be super ideological or, uh, uh, but but really attending to like okay what are the concrete ways we can we can intervene in this movement right whether it's just to you know both support activities of the new unions but also provide a space for discussion right about what how does a union work right how what is what does it mean to for us to organize with uh, rank and file workers right what can we draw from from the international context that can help support our understanding of how unions work, of how workers work in, in, in a class society, and what are the points of resistance, right? And what can we do as, I don't know, three people, five people, 15 people, how can we do to best uh, advocate for these works through even just a small campaign, right? To build workers' consciousness, right? Or class consciousness in a way. How can we use these different vehicles that can be very flexible and very not formalized, but should be sustainable and coherent. And again, going back to my point I keep making, right? should be some sort of system of accountability and decision-making that doesn't entail, you know, uh, uh, you know, people being able to drop out whenever they want or just kind of like, you know, this total atomization where, where democracy is somehow equated to, to a very individualistic practice where people aren't building together, right? Is that find that common point between collective decision-making, um, but also uh, freedom um, for each individual to, to contribute, right? Because um, I feel like the what, what's been happening in Hong Kong, and this is even besides the Beijing repression, is that the understanding of freedom, the understanding of yeah, the understanding of freedom is so individualized, right? Where where it becomes very atomized instead of actually collective, and 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 for me, it's about finding that kind of balance between uh, what it means to build a movement together as a collective while respecting the autonomy um, of each and every individual, but with accountability, with process, and with procedure, which. Again, we're going to talk about decentralization, right? These are things that, you know, anarchist groups, some of the most decentralized left informations have talked about for years and decades, right? In terms of how do we talk about process and democracy while while maintaining decentralization, right? So, so again, just emphasize, not against decentralization, but um, um, those are some, I guess, recommendations, I would say, in terms of the unions and the left. I now would like to turn to um, the question about the new U.S. government. So the Biden government is uh, in the US is currently reconfiguring the official policies, which are meant to contain China as the main competitor for global economy. What are the implications for Hong Kong and especially the protest movement? And uh, what do you think is being discussed in the movement about the Biden government and its potential course? Right. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. This is a this is a difficult point because I I I it's hard to say something that both satisfy the the Hong Kong movement and also the the Western left audience, right? Because then I, the, the the kind of dominant discourse in Hong Kong is that you know, yeah, we support over stronger and uh, against China and and like you know and and this kind of you know for a lot of people very hawkish sense that I that I completely disagree with, right? 
Um, at the same time, we see Biden as that. Uh, but at the same time, I think the, the thing I kind of want to note is that, and, and this goes back to some stuff I addressed in the piece, right? Where I feel like people's, people's love for, for the, Trump, the Trump phenomenon actually ends up overriding uh, their sense of, of, you know, trying to get whoever international allies they have, right? You end, what what ended up happening is that there's been not much spoken, I feel like, about Biden compared to compared to Trump. And whenever he does something, if you just look at comments on, I don't know, Apple Daily or whatever, it's it's a lot of, there's a benefit of the doubt given to Trump that's not given to Biden, right? Like, I'll just kind of say that. And this is not me uh, supporting Biden's policies, right? But I think what, what I'm trying to get at is that there's this kind of natural, there's something, right, about the Trump phenomenon that ends up attracting more Hong Kongers in a way where even though he's wildly inconsistent, which is the point I keep making my piece uh, on the issue of Hong Kong, right? Even he was even before he was president, you know, he was he was bashing Obama for supporting the umbrella movement, like mind your own business, and and you know he threatened to veto the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. You know, and then he, you know, I think, right, and he was, he was now, he's kind of allegiantly more silent on Uyghurs when he was talking to Xi Jinping when the trade war was kind of ebbing, right? So it's like, what, why are Hong Kongers responding to the fact that even though, you know, Biden's now, you know, trying to be strong in China or whatever that means, whether he is or not, right, it doesn't matter. Like, the point is, you know, why are there these different standards for a far-right authoritarian versus your kind of everyday American imperialist politician? So there's that one thing, right, that points to, you know, what I see as the, the deeper roots of the problem with the right wing or this kind of right wing turn in Hong Kong, right, is, is why does that actually end up overriding this, this most sacred principle of, 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 of going beyond ideology and, and seeking whatever allies we, we wish, right, but at the same time being so stuck on Trump, right, having such a significant portion of the movement stuck on Trump, especially in the diaspora, right, which is significantly higher numbers of support for Trump than the local movement itself, at least based on the figures. And yeah, in terms of Biden phenomenon, I think my read of of that foreign policy direction is that he retains some of the kind of, um, he definitely retains the competitive edge, right, that inherited from Trump, and that, you know, he can't fully back away into some sort of, uh, a reality of cooperation again, like in the Obama days or before, right? Like there has to be kind of a hawkish attitude, and and even in his National Security Council, right? Like the biggest contingent is the Indo-Pacific uh, contingent, right? Where where he has a huge team devoted to containing China, and in a sense, I think some pundits are right. Like maybe he ends up uh, positing a a, a a a kind of more effective um, way of containing China along with Western allies because of because it's, he's just less kind of sporadic and chaotic than Trump, right? And of course, speaking as a leftist, that's not like, like a good thing <laughs> necessarily, right? I think for, for me and for other folks in, in, in a very small, small diaspora left and also the local left and um, some parts of the local left is, is that, no, that this kind of um, geopolitical containment is not the solution. This breeds more um, violence um, for the U.S. people, for the Chinese and Hong Kong people. Um, and we don't support the, 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 the cup or, or at least we, we would push for more progressive um, um, notions, at least uh, of foreign policy. Right. Um, than whatever Biden or Trump would champion. Right. So I think in that sense, <laughs> like this is the kind of the difficult part of, of articulating to the Hong Kong audience that like, yes, of course, we want international allies to help um, resist Chinese authoritarian capitalism. Right. But how can we do so in a way that doesn't fall into the traps of, of your usual American imperial foreign policy, right? For example, in the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, right? I guess whoever it was snuck in a bunch of sections about sanctions in Iran and North Korea and things like that, which has been widely considered as completely destructive and inhuman, right, to the populations that 
that uh, that the U.S. is sanctioning. And what does it mean for us to be like, okay, yeah, that part's fine. Let's just we'll just kind of ignore that part. And you know, at, at least the bills for Hong Kong or something, right? How can we kind of avoid that attitude where our support for our own movement uh, doesn't have to throw other movements and other populations under the bus? I think that's the hard thing to articulate. And in reality, the move forward is. Um, yeah, looking at more grassroots alternatives, um, looking at how do we build more connections between civil society, labor unions, right? Um, and again, I, I just want to emphasize, I'm not calling for, you know, we need to look to a different political party or something, or we need to look to socialist parties or something necessarily, right? I think it's more, how can we find, you know, um, you know, where are the groups that the Labour Party and UK are involved with, right? Where are the infrastructures that they off- have to offer? How's that different from, say, the DSA in the US, right? Or just your, uh, or, or nonprofits or migrant justice groups, right? Like the National TPS Alliance in the US, um, or the various other kind of groups in Latin America and Asia, or the various groups fighting um, RCEP, right? Like the new kind of free trade agreement that's been, uh, you know, that's destructive for workers and, and everyday people in Asia, Hong Kong, whatever, um, 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 in that whole region. What does it mean to build with those groups instead, right? And so that's kind of one strategy, at least. Uh, um, um, I'm hoping to kind of um, help promote because I think what Hong Kong people always want is concrete solutions. And when you make critiques without offering solutions, you're not taken seriously. Right. So so I think, yeah, this is definitely kind of a, a difficult point trying to balance right both uh, our allies and friends and comrades in, in, in the U.S. who have been suffering directly from the oppressive policies of both. Right. Trump, Trump, the Trump administration and the legacy of Obama, Biden and those individuals. Right. And, and how do you balance that while, while trying to be, uh, yeah, be, be conciliatory enough in, in the Hong Kong movement where you actually win some more folks over? I think that's a really difficult uh, mind to balance, uh, a, a different line to balance, right? And, and of course, I think international discourse hasn't been as prominent, I think, um, as, as in the 2019-2020 in, in movement, right? So I think in a lot of ways, the last two years has been a kind of crash course in international politics for Hong Kongers. So, um you know, it's like at the same time, um, there's a lot of room for change. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's yeah, it's like both recognizing that I think there's a lot of work to do. But at the same time, it's not like things are very entrenched, right, in terms of international international politics situation that we can't um, fully offer alternatives, I think, at least. Yeah, that's what I'll say about Biden. Um, there, were a, there was a lot of interest in uh, the whole Trumpism issues and um the connection to right-wing politics in general. So I will ask you another question about this. So also in the mainland China, there are Trump supporters who are at the same time disapprove Hong Kong's independence. And also, as you already wrote in your article and also elaborate on, also in the Hong Kong movement, there are a lot of people who support Trump as a person. And of course, the whole right-wing politics he personifies. What do you think is the shared trust in right-wing American politics there? Or Sorry, in general, in, so what do you, why do you think uh, people so attracted to uh, Trump and to right-wing politics when it comes um, also to the Hong Kong movement? Right, yeah, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, so this is, the, I guess, the controversial part of my piece is that I think there's a, there's a kind of emotive a cultural element and that's kind of latent in Hong Kong society, right? Where, where it's almost like, um, you know, someone like Trump actually became, um, ends up being a very fertile connection for latent kind of symptoms or, or tendencies that's already in the Hong Kong movement, right? I mean, for one thing, I, I mean, this, this seems kind of speculative, but I think there's a bit of a connection there, right? That 
that a lot of actually how right uh, Hong Kong political discourse works, right? I mean, that's that's why there's this whole culture of KOLs, right? Key opinion leaders who are who are often you know are actually the face of of the right wing more so than actual organized political groups, right? So I'm thinking of people like Louis Loud, right? Lo Cidat, and and you know Chin Wan, like you know Chin Wan's kind of passed now, but you know he has a huge formative influence on like the people who are more popular now, right? And and also, you know, various pundits on Apple Daily, right? I mean, they've already embodied, or, you know, Chips out, right, Toki, you know, who, who have already actually are kind of Trumpian in a way, like just very rhetorically speaking, not even in terms of politics, even before Trump became a thing, right? It's this kind of caustic, you know, this kind of, you know, very, uh, very controversial, bombastic, polemical tone, right? That Trump actually ends up kind of doing in his own context, right? And I think, I think it, it doesn't, I don't think it's coincidence that these tendencies end up kind of colliding, right? Where it's this kind of point of rhetoric that people sympathize with, right? It's like, oh yeah, he's, uh, you, know, you know, someone like Trump is someone kind of like, uh, uh, it's kind of like Chin Wan, it's kind of like uh, Chip Sal in a way, right? It's kind of like the people in Apple Daily, right? It's bombastic, it's controversial. And and that must automatically means they're speaking some sort of truth, right? Uh, right, right, as opposed to this usual bland hegemony of, of, of moderates, of Democrats or whatever, right? That usually sell us out or they're kind of ineffectual, right? It's like, you know, people who are controversial, right? Ends up doing doing this stuff, right? And of course, the, I think the other point of reference that I mentioned is, is uh, right, Wan Yokman, right? Who is, who's kind of really big in a legislative council, right? Throwing bananas and stuff, right? And right, so like, I felt like, you know, Tr- Trump and his phenomenon ends up kind of taking on that kind of rhetoric or style of, of provocation, right? So on the point of rhetoric, there's already kind of an easy connection with Hong Kong society that opens them up to all these ideas, right? And and again, I think the hyper-capitalist kind of uh, unconscious hyper-capitalism latent in Hong Kong society, even before the movement, right? Again, readily gives room to this kind of right-wing distrust and attack on identity politics and POC, like cancel culture, you know, it, it's like, you know, it's like, I feel like there's a lot of ways in which Hong Kongers, even if you see, especially in political forums and stuff, right? When you get to be anonymous and you get to make kind of ridiculous statements, right? Like that already provides a ready connection to how these right wing thinkers think and operate and talk right in the U.S. and and the global perspective, and of course it also doesn't help that that um, you know again beyond Trump right, but like you know the hard right senators and, and politicians have provided the most consistent support right. You, Josh Hawley right, who's a despicable human being is is you know he's on the streets of Hong Kong right taking photo ops of, of Hong Kongers and seeing just like supporting the actual protests and things like that and. And, and all these different people, and of course, like, those are the loudest voices, right? And of course, it's not like the Democrats didn't support them, right? But it's more like, you know, they have an ideological investment, right, the right wing globally in what's going on in Hong Kong, and there's a mission, and, and there's a very uh, ready history, right, of how the hard right likes to co-opt, right, and, 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 and kind of synthesize with a lot of local movements of resistance, right? And so, yeah, in the Hong Kong context, again, like my point is, I think, I think there's a rhetorical level that ends up being very, very, very powerful um, and very useful for the global right wing. And at the same time, yeah, the, the right wing reached out, right? And, and, and in the meantime, the left is busy um, dealing with tankies and dealing with, <laughs> dealing with pro-Beijing supporters. So, so in a sense, it's like I'm not trying to defend Hong Kongers for not like choosing the left, right? But in a sense, if we're, if, if the loudest voices from the left are, are pro-Beijing pundits, like all the crooks and the gray zone and stuff, then why would we support a movement? Why, why would we expect a movement to support the left of those that are the loudest voices? And at the same time, you get Josh Hawley in the streets, right? 
again, I hate Josh Hawley. I'm not defending Josh Hawley. Um, but it's, it's just very concretely speaking, we're looking at the results. Like those are the results and, and for Hong Kongers and, and that's what they're going to choose. So, so those are, I think, are the kind of the dual reasons, I think, for, I think, why the right wing is partly became so prominent. Thank you. I will hand over again to Ralf. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, before we actually come back to maybe the question of solidarity, you already mentioned that several times, but um, before we forget it, because we have about another 20 minutes or so, um, this year there have been dozens of arrests, right, of people, of, of politicians, activists, um, and the government is using the national security law. Um, so is that actually a new step? And, you know, sort of towards a more authoritarian system in general in, in Hong Kong, is there still space for resistance and what kind of space? Or are, you know, people are so scared that they're not daring? Um, and what, what role that plays the pandemic? How do you see that? Yeah, um... I mean, yeah, definitely. There's, there's. This is, I think, the greatest level of repression the city has seen since the handover. And um, yeah, I think it's a bit dismal. And with the pandemic, it it is definitely hard to. Uh, uh, I mean, it's just like kind of you know a lot of kind of compounding factors, right? I mean, not to even mention the the burnout from from a whole year or more of struggle, right? And people feeling disillusioned, um, you know, let alone the repression and things like that. So I think, yeah, like room feels like um, it's hard. And, and again, going back to some of my recommendations, right? If people are even scared to, you know, let alone do campaigns together, right? Let alone even speak like anonymously, right? Like online, right? Because of the fear of surveillance and, and tracking VPNs even or whatever, right? So I think it's difficult. Um, but at the same time, right? Like you definitely see like the new unions are still active and uh, or at least for now, <laughs> And um, I think there are a lot of rooms that we still speak out about issues uh, in a way that, and of course, now the risk is always there. It's just kind of like, I think what the, the effect of national security law isn't to like prosecute everyone, right? But the effect of it is, is to create an atmosphere of fear, to discourage people from organizing precisely. So I think, I think that's definitely a factor. But yeah, like for example, um, I was going to point to, there's actually some other kind of, I think, less well-known local campaigns and stuff that's going on. You know that's you know less directly related, I think, to the you know this this larger struggle for democracy, but are are like grassroots struggles, right? That are trying to point out uh, social and political issues, right? Like for example, there's a in, in Kowloon City, there's like a kind of anti gentrification, uh, you know, trying to call for more democratic participation in city planning. Um, you know, a little collective or group of people going on. Um, there's uh you know there's this Lam Tao Tomorrow Vision project planned by Carrie Lam in 2018 where she's trying to, you know, kind of make a bunch of land and, and it's 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 this kind of disastrous environmental projects and 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 displacing project and stuff like that and and you know that might be another potential flashpoint for something like a a revival of the Land Justice League style um, mode of activism right and so far it seems like there's still some room right when it when it doesn't threaten national security obviously like you know you know what that actually means is up to the up to the decision of the beijing judges right but 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 there's still some room to at least you know keep politicizing right and, and keep planting seeds um um for people on the ground right to 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 think about how to organize how to how to do politics right in a way that right you might not immediately try to topple the whole system but we're kind of building blocks of of what it means to 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 
kind of resist the government in a very basic sense, right? That you can, you can, you can call out in these kind of more local, very localized campaigns. So I'll definitely look to that. And again, obviously the labor unions and stuff, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it is a little bleak. Um, I think it's definitely hard on the ground. Um, and this is a point I'll, I'll keep emphasizing is that there's a lot of work, I think now for the diaspora, right? And I think this is not totally unnoticed, right? A lot of prominent figures in the movement has fled abroad. And um, and there's been a lot of efforts and people abroad to rethink what it means for us to 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 think about how to assist Hong Kong from afar, right? Because I think, um, you know, even throughout Chinese history, right? Like the, the influence and the impact of 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 emigrants right uh who, who end up outside even if you look at um sun yat-sen right who, who you know who actually spent a bit of time outside of china and stuff right so i think this dynamic between the local and those who are broader actually is a very important one for us to think about now um now that the movement is just scattered and there's a lot of work to do in the diaspora right and i think this is especially the moment for the left to act right because this is because if not i think what, what's going to happen is that uh, a lot of the diaspora activists are going to double down on this uh, on the usual strategy of of uh of 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 um of courting senators and right and, and giving more power to the right wing in a sense right when when we don't posit a left wing alternative for internationalism right is that the this this kind of uh, uh mass immigration out of hong kong again right like the pre-handover years is that um it can be a double-edged sword right in one hand there's a lot of potential to expose Hong Kongers, for example, to local left traditions, to politicization, to other forms of organizing. But at the same time, you know, if we fail to act, right, um, the result is actually, um, it's not just about Hong Kong, it's, it's, it's actually, um, it's building the power, right, of right-wing regimes and right-wing forces worldwide, but especially in the U.S., right, that we've seen, for example, like with the Cuban population in Florida, right, with, with the Vietnamese population, um, the, you know, the right wing portions of these populations, you know, they're growing in size and and the cost of not politicizing Hong Kongers, right, as they're going abroad is in a sense the applica- amplification of the right wing um, worldwide. So so I think that's also as important as looking towards kind of struggles to support locally in Hong Kong as well. But yeah, but my basic kind of assessment is that, yeah, I think change is very difficult in the, in the, in the, in the short term. And we have to think about long term and, and political education look back at what we did wrong and incorrectly um, in the aftermath of the umbrella movement, right? How can we make use of a period of downturn to prepare for a potential, right, future uh, uprising again, right? And how can we do the next one differently, learning the lessons of this this time? And how can we learn the lessons differently now too, right? Because going back to the decentralization thing, you know, I think part of part of that is a response to the dynamics of umbrella, right? Where people end up infighting and, and, and things, everyone started hating each other and things like that. And, and in many ways, the, the no big platform thing is a response to that, right? Is that, okay, no, let's just unite and not fight over little things and stuff, right? And now we have to think about, okay, so how did that first infighting thing go wrong? And now, but at the same time, how, how did, you know, not drawing boundaries of anyone also go wrong, right? And how can we find, what's the alternative? What's like the middle point, right? I think this is precisely the time to think together collectively about these questions that I don't have all the answers to. Yeah, just two more questions. One, you know, you already mentioned that, but maybe more sort of more concrete, like what do you think, like left wing activists in the movement in Hong Kong, you know, who, that's also a question from the audience, like who, who should they contact or who should they work with um, abroad? Like, you know, what, maybe you have a, a recommendation and also the other way around. So groups who are not tanky, <laughs> And actually, have struggled a lot with tankies. 
um, in, you know, in organizations in the left in many countries, right? You mentioned that. So what's your recommendation there? Like, you know, what, what is the way to overcome this false picture of the CCP as left wing? Um, you know, rightly, you know, called it right wing in the beginning. So, so maybe, you know, maybe I also have a recommendation there. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult for folks on the ground. I think some of the vehicles that I'm, I'm hoping to help develop and things like that, right, are, are not totally readily accessible or prominent for, for Hong Kongers to look to. So I think that's definitely something the left itself has to reflect on. Um, um, but the other thing is, yeah, like some of the stuff that I was talking about, right, like uh, the RCEP project, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or, or whatever the acronym is, right? It's like there's all these kind of larger geopolitical things that are going on. And if we, we can look to our neighbors, right, to see what, what we can connect to, right? There are labor groups, there are advocacy groups, they're helping to resist, uh, you know, what is in a sense, right? Like the, the increasing influence of Chinese capital, right, through projects like the RCEP. And so how can we team up with these other uh, 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 kind of alliances um, and reach out uh, to, to raise awareness, to join together in campaigns, to connect the local and the trans transnational in that sense? Um, and yeah, labor unions is another thing, right? It's like, and I'm just saying this is, you know, it's kind of like, a, it feels like I'm just being like, you know, it's like, I'm a leftist and I like unions, so therefore you should connect with unions. I think on one level, it's like, yeah, that's my assessment of how a movement should work. But at the same time, it's that it actually, even if you're not a leftist, that's actually one of the few remaining lines of action that's available. Like the new unions are still acting, <laughs> like they're still around, right? So I think even if you're not in the left or something, it just makes sense to to look to, you know, for example, like, you know, labor movement for solidarity with Hong Kong. I, I know a lot of members are, 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 are here right now or just now. We're doing a lot of amazing work trying to bridge together labor union activists, right, in the UK um, and to expose Hong Kongers and to give support, right, from that level of work, right? And so what does it mean to, you know, actually turn to these things as alternative now, not just in principle as a leftist, but because that, you know, this is one of the few remaining concrete lines of solidarity left, right? Um, labor movements abroad um, and things of that nature. And um, again, one other thing is like, you know, like progressive organizations, NGOs, worker centers and stuff. And, you know, one, one I kept pointing to is like migrant justice organizations, right? That can kind of connect, you know, for example, uh, right? Like the CIC detention center work is also kind of going on in Hong Kong, right? Like the, 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 the situation of, of, of refugees and migrants, stuff like that. How can that be connected with, you know, for example, abolitionist movements in, in the United States? Um, and okay, if that sounds kind of impractical or whatever, right? Like there are concrete organizations, right? And I think this is very especially important for, for, for Hong Kongers who are moving out, right? Is that it makes no sense to look to the, the right wing uh, uh, senators for, for, for assistance in, 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 in refugee policy and migration and stuff like that, right? Because that's always going to be governed by, by economic uh, motive for these people. And it's always going to be limited and it's always going to be linked from other, uh, 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 from, you know, people who are actually doing the work on the ground, right? Migrant, migrant justice organizers and things like that in the U.S., like the National TPS Alliance. And, you know, at the same time, how can we look to um, other civil society groups, right? And I think this is where I'm pointing to by saying, you know, besides the labor connection and some of these other things, I think actually... And this is difficult to say, and I think probably unattractive or something, is that maybe there's not a lot of immediate lines for of actions that are uh, immediately concrete, right? And that's just 
the unfortunate reality. But that doesn't mean we stop building these connections just because it doesn't give us that kind of immediate spectacle we want, right? Like the ones we had in 2019 or 20, you know, like U.S. sanctions, right? Uh, getting Trump to say something or or just getting U.S. to just kind of the government to kind of mess things up in their own way and, and, and to kind of, uh, right, yeah, sanctions officials and do these like very immediate kind of flashy actions like the bill, right? Like the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Bill, well, actually doesn't really do that much, right? But it seems practical and concrete and it gives something for folks to hold on to, right? And how can we move away from that mindset and look to building uh, networks that are actually more sustainable and more concrete, but give less of that immediate umph, right? That we have seen in the last two years. How can we start reorienting folks around us to look towards that disposition? I think is a question that we have to ask ourselves before we even think about, um, you know, which groups specifically to connect with and what that campaign would look like, right? Is that as we're thinking about these questions, how can we also, you know, convince and organize and do the work of, of, of convincing other Hong Kongers that this is the way for now, right? Like this is not only effective and more effective than, than the, the right-wing alternative, but it's also, it's not as immediate, but it's also necessary, right? And how can we do the work to, to convince others? And I think that takes organizations, campaigns, efforts, and coordination, so, so that's kind of my um, bit of a bleak answer, but but yeah, I think I think in terms of labor, a lot of concrete connections, but 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 yeah, a lot of a lot of the work and concrete results aren't going to be uh, the same ones that a lot of Hong Kongers would want to expect that they think they received in in twenty nineteen and twenty twenty. Yeah, well, one last question from from my side, as, as I mentioned earlier, I in some way you know I sympathized with the movement when it kind of questions. Uh, you know, sort of certain left-wing attitudes, um, you know, not that I, you know, support the right-wing, obviously, uh, but just like sort of this critique of sort of traditional left-wing um, attitudes when it comes to popular movements. I kind of share that. And there's actually also in, a, in an article that Zoe Zhao that you, you mentioned earlier wrote, I, I kind of understand her um, in, in that sense that um, so you know, like like us, you know, you know, you as a Hong Kong diaspora and, and you know, me and others um, who are kind of involved in the debate and in, in, in connected to, to left-wing activism in, in Hong Kong. Obviously, we have, you know, the way we ad address the issues in Hong Kong, right? Like the way we can sort of criticize, you know, sort of what, what's going on there, uh, criticize politically, right? It uh, also includes like kind of a, a problem, right? Like a problem of the relation between sort of left-wing, um, activists um, who, you know, it's a kind of an outsider in a certain sense, more or less outsider, um, um, are very critical of certain aspects. And then also maybe, you know, are like organized, have a global vision, you know, sort of know a lot about different movements and maybe even have an academic background or even an academic position. So, you know, now this, this sort of, you know, from this position, you know, how do we still show respect? How, how do we still kind of like you know, get involved in a discussion with sort of grassroots activists in in Hong Kong who don't have this vision, who don't have this perspective because they had no chance to get it. Um, you know, how how does that work? Like, how how would how should we address this issue? Yeah, again, I think this goes back to something that ends up being lost as we as we I think as we as leftists get deeper into our own ideological critiques and our identity and our affiliations and things like that, right? Is that at least for me, the the kernel of being in the left is is to empower people to be able to decide their own future, to decide their own material conditions without coercion, 
and without oppression and without systematic oppression and things like that, right? And so that entails actually uh, a certain amount of humility and, 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 and learning from and with each other, right, actually. Um, and I think at the end of the day, all these different things we come up with, like parties and organizations and campaigns and strategies and stuff, is, it should be all in service of that fundamental ethos, right? Is that we're, we're not trying to teach people things, right? But it's, it's more how do we empower people, masses of people, right, to be able to democratically come to decisions and have a and have a feet in the table and so but we have that ethos in mind right is that yeah like we don't need like i share a lot of the critiques of traditional left-wing formations i i personally don't come from a kind of uh a very orthodox democratic centralist background or from like a party allegiance or something like that so and i definitely see the limitations of that right but i think again i think there's there's an alternative to that that doesn't require atomization uh a, a, a complete kind of um um, uh, a chaos of, of different perspective where, where there's no common ground, right? And so I think, you know, I think, I think you know, again, I, I do want to say, like, there, I think there are a lot of leftists on the ground who are doing amazing work and are actually not as distant. I think there's, like, this, this, this kind of illusion of, I mean, obviously there are some leftists who are pretty, like, you know, off the ground and they just critique and don't do anything or something, right? But at the same time, you know, there's like a lot of people who identify with left and, and they are active on the front lines. Like I know people who, like I know most people who are left wing and, and are, you know, more front line than I know or than anyone else I know. And, and, and so, you know, what do we do with that? And, and I think they're doing important work already. And I think, I think for me, the, 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 the thing isn't like, you know, to keep bashing the left for not being, I don't know, together or something, but more like how can we meet the left where they're at. I think there's a reason why people choose not to band together as the left, right? Like there's a history of infighting. There's a there's a lack of local tradition to know what that means. And, and obviously there's a lack of possibility, right? In terms of this increasing repression. So you have to like sympathize and understand all those things, right? But at the same time, um, yeah, I think again, going back to what I said about participation, like we have to be in the movement, right? And in, in, in whatever way we find possible, right? And I don't mean that by like, you have to be on the streets and the front lines, right? Like, I don't believe in this valorization of like, you know, the more front lines you are, the, the more you're, you're, you have the right to speak, right? I think that actually is a fundamentally very problematic idea that actually lends weight to, to a kind of insurgent right-wing politics, right? It's almost kind of like, you know, yeah, like, like what I was alluding to, like the, the more you spill blood for the movement, the more you have the right to speak. It's, it's kind of just actually a reverse image of, of how, of how the CCP defends its nationalism, right? It's, it's, uh, you know, you got to sacrifice for the movement, for the country and for the nation, right? This is just kind of, it's almost like an insurgent form of that uh, when you buy into that too much, right? So I don't mean valorizing the front lines, but, but you know, trying to do what, what you can from where you're at for the movement without simply just uh, uh, critiquing and not offering solutions uh, and, and not trying to follow alternatives wherever you are, right? You know, of course, you know, there's burnout that's real and things like that. But I think, I think the key is to, you know, always find your way back to the movement and, um Meet folks where they're at, but again, going back to what I recommended already earlier, right? But find rooms to to raise campaigns, to to power map, right? To 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 organize together, right? To think about process and procedure together, to build groups when you can, of course, uh, um, um, under uh, as securely as you can, even though there's always a risk under the Beijing government now. Um, but yeah, to so always find opportunities for that, right? And always find people that you think you can influence right who might not have the same politics as you and start from one-on-one conversations right and slowly move to um hey let's form a group chat or a reading group or hey would you let's turn out like the four of us and support this one thing right whether it's a 
small action or a, a, a local town meeting for what I just said, Kowloon City's preservation project or uh, a street stand for the hospital workers union or something, right? And how can we use these kind of energies or this kind of attitude to slowly build outwards, right? Without, you know, coercing people or just like, you know, telling people you need to be in the left or something from above or something. But at the same time, you know, being very clear, like, no, let's think about strategy, let's think about tactics, and let's think about political analysis of the conditions of force around us. I think the I think the balance is precisely that, right? How can we have political clarity and have a will to action and not just action in the sense of doing what we think is most popular for the movement, right? Because that's not always the best alternative for 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 the movement as a whole, right? And you have to have clarity and, and confidence in what you think is is politically effective, right? While being open minded. And I think that's precisely yeah, I, th- I think that's the way to go in terms of an Ida organization, an Ida strategy, an Ida power mapping, while at the same time respecting and understanding uh, the reason why the left, so to speak, is in the kind of situation it is in today, like the rest of the mass movements. Okay, thank you very much um, for for this, for sharing your insights and perspectives. Um, I, I think it was very inspiring. Indeed, I, I'm sure we will continue, we have to continue this debate, both on uh, how to face the right and also how to develop the left, basically, um, and also create solid solidarity um, with the movement in, in Hong Kong and and also connect the movements, right, the, the, that you also underlined, sort of on the on a more on a grassroots level in the in the future. So, thank you very much. I promise. And um, yeah, I, I, all that I have to do is say goodbye. Goodbye now, and hope to see you in two weeks.